Hey Houston, Khan's prices are invincible. That means prices have been cut low, as in amazingly low, as in won't be beat. In fact, we're backing it up with our low price guarantee. Invincible prices on appliances, furniture, electronics, mattresses, and more. Not invincible enough for you? How about free next day delivery on appliances, TVs, and mattresses? And payment options for everyone, whether you have good credit or building it. Visit Cons today and find out what invincible feels like. Hey, folks, and welcome to Typology. The show on which we explore the story of you through the lens of the Enneagram. And I couldn't be more excited about our guest today. We've had him before. We've got him back here for you. Amazing communicator. Just a deep, deep, deep well of treasure troves that he is going to share with us today. He is also New York Times bestselling author of 23 books, including his brand new book, which we're breaking down today for you. Please, sorry, thanks the three words that change everything. I am talking about Dr. Mark Batterson, lead pastor of National Community Church in Washington, D.C. I love when Mark comes on because I know he's always going to give me something that has real depth to it, but it's super accessible as well. And I love that we get to give these kind of things away. Again, we're going to break down his brand new book, Please, Sorry, Thanks, the three words that change everything. You're going to love this interview. Mark's awesome. Your host with the most, Ian Cron. Hey, Typology Tribe, welcome to this week's show. On it, we have my really good friend, Mark Batterson, author of the new book, Please, Sorry, Thanks, the three words that change everything, and Enneagram 3. Mark, welcome to the show. Hey, Ian, good to be back and count me a part of that tribe. I love the podcast, love your writings, and they have been a huge blessing to my wife and I. So thank you. Oh, man, that's really great. I was uh, saying to you earlier that we've had this kind of writing connection for years. You were so kind. You endorsed Chasing Francis and then my memoir, Jesus, My Father, the CIA and Me. You endorse the story of, no, not the story of you, but the road back to you. And man, you know, that's. He declined on the, on the road ah, the story of you. No, I, I don't remember what happened. I don't, I don't have a, he may have, but I don't, I don't have a copy of it right here in front of me. Anyway, Mark, thank you so much for your. Uh, I'm kidding. Thanks, Anthony. That was a really good start. Uh, anyway, <laughs> let's, uh, let's move on to you, man. I'm, I just want to circle back. We haven't spoken in a bunch of years and just ask you again, you know, when and how did you discover the Enneagram? How you mentioned your marriage, but also in your ministry, how has it figured into all that? We discovered it through your book, The Road Back to You. And we were on an airplane flying to California from DC. So you're gonna you're gonna get halfway through the book at least. And Laura, my wife of 30 years now, leaned over and said, if you want to understand me, read this. And I start reading your mm. book and it starts reading my mail. So Laura, might as well tip our cards. Laura is a one. I mm -hmm. am a three. And it, in a funny way, our experience of me washing the dishes and putting dishes into the dishwasher 
and perhaps not to the perfectionist standards of my amazing wife. We just chuckled because uh, your book not only led to greater self-awareness, but I think an awareness and an appreciation of each other. I always feel like every number has a burden to bear, right? But there's also a gift to offer. And so we read it on a plane, which 30,000 feet is always the best place to read a book. Well, I'm really glad. Do you use it in your ministry at all? We do. I reference it all the time. And with our team, especially our staff, it's such a key understanding. And, you know, it helps me then understand how different people are motivated, the best way to uh, perhaps frame a project, even to do evaluation with our team. You know, knowing that number is really helpful to know those tendencies. And of course, you know, not to box them in or pigeonhole them, but it just gives a great foundation for working relationships. Yeah, it can be pretty extraordinary shorthand, right? In terms of just even just the beginning of a a conversation with a new vernacular, to be able just to talk about the inner architecture of yourself and the other. And it's not comprehensive, but it sure is helpful uh, in the long and short term. So, you know, you mentioned self-awareness. And we know that, and I've mentioned this before on the show, that you know, research has shown, at least in business and leadership, this is true, but I would argue it, it's just true about all of life that, you know, a key predictor of success is self-awareness, right? And actually among research, it is the key predictor of success. But I'm wondering for you as a young three, I mean, and you were rocketing along and doing great in ministry, uh, crushing it at a speed that others would have just loved to have done. I'm curious to know, as you look back in those early years when you're a young guy, you don't have a lot of self-awareness and you're a three. Can you just tell me about a couple of the mistakes that you made? Yeah. Can I play a risk chip first? Because this this might get me branded. Uh, there's a distinction between self-awareness and self-consciousness. And so part of my theology is that I really believe that The fall, part of the byproduct of the fall was self-consciousness. I mean, they were naked and unashamed before that. So self-consciousness, to me, you have to overcome that. You have to get past your self-consciousness, past your ego, so to speak. To me, it's it's strange, but self-awareness almost seems like the polar opposite, that that it's not self-consciousness in the sense of, not being able to be myself, but just a self-awareness of I am who I am for better or for worse. Yeah. So I just, I wanted to put that out there. I don't know if you have a thought on that and then we can, I want to answer your question, but I yeah. think that distinction is one that might be sure. helpful to people. Well, that's okay, Mark, because in therapy, we call what you just did deflection, but we'll go with what you want to do. So <laughs> Moving right along. Uh, moving yes. right along. Uh, yes. Okay. Let's talk about that. I mean, I think that self-awareness, if I was going to give it for purposes of our conversation, we might define it as familiarity with how it is that you show up for life. That's all. Mm, Or we might also say that it's the capacity to self-observe in a neutral, dispassionate way, the ways that you habitually and predictably act, think, and feel from moment to moment on a daily basis. 
That's it. It really doesn't have any sort of theological bent. It's just sort of a psychological idea. So for me personally, as a four, for example, the other day, I'm driving down a street here in Nashville, Tyne Boulevard, Anthony. So you know how wealthy that street is, right? Oh, yeah. I'm driving down the street. I see a big old house and I don't know what kind of mood I was in. And I saw it and I was like, you know what? I deserve that house. <laughs> I am. I am. I don't understand why that person has it. I'm probably as smart as they are. I've worked hard. And, and all of a sudden, in my own body, somatically, I could actually feel my deadly sin of envy rising up. Mm. And I was able to observe it in real time. Yep. And to address it with compassion and honesty, to say, oh, there you go. There goes your deadly sin. That's okay. That's what humans do. But we also don't have to listen to the lie underneath that. And I actually then also called a, a really good friend of mine in my 12-step community, and I just said, hey, man, I'm really struggling with envy right now. And he laughed, and we laughed. and that. So that's, I think, an example of where self-awareness works. Yeah. And isn't don't you feel like, you know, and I have two counselors. Some of us need more than one. Uh, the counseling, <laughs> counseling is, is really about elevating self-awareness. And I, I think yes. what it's helped me do, it, it helps me appreciate that all of us have adaptive strategies from our family of origin, how we get yes. attention, how we resolve conflict. And I just need to know my default settings. And, yes. you know, my counselor would say, my goal is to get you to operate a little outside your programming. Not not even a lot, just a little. Yeah. And yeah. to me, self-awareness then is that non-anxious curiosity about myself and yes. about others. And then I'm able to give a little bit more, more grace. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Self-awareness is also, I think, Mark, the capacity to observe in real time how your personality, your way of being in the world is affecting another person in the moment. And then the capacity to tweak what's going on in the moment so that miscommunication, misunderstandings, things like inefficiencies can be eliminated. And actually, so there could be some genuine uh, loving interaction be between the two of you. So again, yeah. I don't think self-awareness, self-consciousness, I think is a very different creature from self-awareness. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, I, so I do not, we've all been self-conscious if we were ever 15 and uh, we, we all know the feeling of being naked. We actually, we all know what it's like to dream at 15 years old about being naked in front of our locker. Uh, so that, that's sort of the, 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 the idea of, but the, you know, to your point, Mark, the, just to finish up, because I think this is important for people to understand that when you have self-awareness, you can recognize your own suffering points, address them with honesty, clarity, and compassion. You can recognize them in the other. You can move through the world with less unnecessary friction, like, you know, moving through the world, you know, sort of scudding along. And I, I just feel like it's, um, you know how many people you and I know who were huge pastors and fell. And I think to myself all the time, through the lens of the Enneagram, I really could have helped you. Mm -hmm. I, I may not have been able to save you if there was a character problem, but if this was a personality problem, this would have been a simple fix. I mean, no, simple. Uh, it would have been a observable, diagnosable problem that we probably could have headed off at the pass. You yeah. Know? 
But yep. Okay. Yep. Okay. So can I just say one little more thing before you say that? Cause I was, that's what I wanted to say was, I think it's the real time thing you said, Ian, uh, self-awareness. I, for me, it's all about being able to catch yourself in real time. And that's yes. the game changer of the Enneagram. Yep. It's like when you really do start to wrap your mind around this tool, it helps you be self-aware in real time. So I just wanted to. Yeah. And, and Anthony, so many of us don't know how others experience us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) And, and so, you know, one, one of my goals, the, the non-anxious curiosity, I, I would just ask the question, especially of leaders who are listening, when you walk into the room, does the level of anxiety go up or down? And can you read that? But, you know, Ian, I'm, I want to go back to that original question. Yeah, part I was going to go there. <laughs> part, of, part of why I'm poking at this is because there's a three mm. deception is mm. that temptation, is that underlying. Sometimes I'm so self-aware. I mean, I'm just I'm trying to protect my image and what, where I've had to grow as a leader is to continually humanize myself and become more vulnerable with some of the challenges, failures, fears. And that's hard for a three to do, but you have to, you have to grow into it. And for some reason, that distinction between self-consciousness and self-awareness has helped me because if I care too much about what people think of me, I can't really care for them. Is my is that, that, that word, because you, you distinguish a difference. You said non-anxious curiosity. Is that kind of what that's about? Yeah, because I, you know, Edwin Friedman, you know, failure of nerve, this idea of being a non-anxious presence. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my, my counselor adds the word curiosity to it. So, mm-hmm. Anthony, the way I see it is your problems, if you have a curiosity about them, it can actually be, huh, that's an interesting problem to solve. Or it's almost like a jigsaw puzzle. So what I've tried to do is just approach things with a little bit more non-anxious curiosity. And uh, and that, that then gives me more of a outside looking in at this mm-hmm. issue or problem that's helped me navigate it. You know, it's so funny. I When I was in grad school to become a psychotherapist, non-anxious presence was a term we all had to learn and a a skill we had to practice, right? Because you want to be in the presence of a client, particularly one in distress, as a non-anxious presence and to be curious, to be thoughtful. But I'll tell you, man, I had a therapist. He was a Jungian therapist and a five on the Enneagram. And nobody does non-anxious curiosity like a five. And it's (laughs) wonderful to behold. Uh, It's a real gift, man. What a gift. It's a real gift. Yeah. Yes. All right. So three, what mistakes did you make as a young man who didn't have much self-knowledge or self-awareness early in life? What mistakes did you make as building an, you know, a sizable work as the one that you have now? Well, it, this is embarrassing to admit, but that's healthy for threes. So here we go. I, I remember thinking that if I could be pastoring a thousand people by the time I turned 30, like it's embarrassing for me to even put that out there. But you have to understand when I was interviewed for credentials, I thought they would ask theological questions. So I was brushing up on my eschatology, but I had a a wise pastor ask the question, if you had to describe yourself in one word, what would it be? 
Now, that, that's actually a really interesting question to ask people. It's hard. But my 22-year-old self answered that question, driven. Yeah. And I remember being so proud of my answer. I thought, they're not going to license me. They're just going to ordain me on the spot. Like, we have a driven 22-year-old. Let's go. And it's embarrassing now looking back on it. What I have discovered is that the goal is not the goal. The goal is who you become in the process. And I really Mm. believe that. As a three, I've had to learn to enjoy the journey, every age and stage, both as a parent and as a pastor. And and what I discovered is, well, someone said it this way, more money, more problems. Listen, more people, more problems. The blessings of God will complicate your life. Now, it will complicate your life in a way that it should be complicated, but what I was dreaming for with a large congregation, I think it was for all the wrong reasons. And I had to unlearn some of those things. And honestly, it was a failed church plant, our first attempt that I'm eternally grateful for because the cure for the fear of failure is not success. It's failure in small enough doses that you build up an immunity to it. So, mm-hmm. you know, I look back on those early years with a couple of failures under my belt. And it, it helped me as a three, you know, probably still as driven, but able to put guardrails in place that sort of helped me navigate some of those ego issues that I was trying to, uh, to figure out at the time. You know, it's so interesting. I've been on this journey and I've shared it with our family here on Topology. I have journals that I have kept in a safe for years going back to 1987, which is the year I, I got sober the first time. And I just was going through them because at 62, I'm, you know, if I got hit by a bus or if I just croaked somewhere, I don't want to leave stuff behind that my kids would read that I don't want to necessarily have. You know, no, seriously, it's like, man, I got to be thoughtful. And I just felt like maybe I just need to go back through those and figure out if I want to get rid of them. Would that be a, a wonderful spiritual thing? To, I, I don't know. Just maybe just revisiting earlier years. And as I was going through them, one of the things that really stood out to me was that through the lens of the Enneagram was realizing the pain behind the personality, that there is always pain behind the personality formation. And in some ways, you could argue, and I would, that your Enneagram type is a response to first wounding or first trauma. In other words, you pursue success, the need for success, the avoidance of failure, because you don't want to be re-traumatized by some early wound for which that was the defense, right? It's like, okay, if I do this, I'm going to be all right. So can you tell me what you think the pain is behind your personality and why you became a three? Like what happened to you? You know, that that is tricky to answer because I don't know the Genesis moment, but I do remember with that failed church plant, it was embarrassing. It was so embarrassing, but there was something about that that, again, almost cured me of the fear of failure. Like, God is still here to pick me up, dust me off, and give me another chance. Like, it's not Mm. the end of the world. So, I think that's allowed us to be pretty entrepreneurial in terms of some of the things we've done in D.C., you know. And so, as I get a little bit older, Ian, I feel like... I've learned to appreciate the pain and suffering. I, I don't don't love it, 
But I'll give an example. You know, Laura, my wife, has had two bouts with cancer in the last five years. No one wishes that on anyone, but there's something about pain and suffering that increases your capacity for joy and for wonder. I don't know if I can totally explain that, but lament is not my native tongue, but learning to lament has increased my capacity to really celebrate the good things in life. So I've just come to terms with the fact that, in a sense, life is unfair, then we die. And I'm, I'm Mr. Positivity, but I've learned to appreciate the hard parts of life. In fact, I need to share this. My wife, Laura, when she got that first diagnosis, she read a, a poem and the poem posed a question. And the question was this, what have you come to teach me? That's a hard question to ask of cancer. But if you don't ask the hard question during the hard times in life, be it pain or suffering, you're going to end up right back where you were. So I think as a three, I want to get on to the next goal. And then the goal after that, I've really learned in recent years, you better learn the lesson that life is teaching you right now. And in the process, while you're at it, why don't you go ahead and forgive reality, right? Because it is what it is. And so you never arrive. You never figure it out. There is no finish line, be it in leadership or any other venue of life. You just keep growing in that self-awareness. And I think, you know, for me, keep growing in my awareness of who God is and how God helps me through each and every situation. So Hmm. that's it in a nutshell. So let's talk about the new book, please. Sorry. Thanks. The three words that change everything. I, you know, I haven't had a chance to read it yet because your dang publisher hasn't sent it to me. (laughs) However, (laughs) however, I have read Appraises and I knew we were going to talk and we could really unpack this thing. Tell me about it. What's the inspiration behind it? And, you know, of course, it's a very big thing to say. It's a big statement to say the three words that change everything. So let's have at it. Yeah. Well, in my book, you only need to be good at three things. If you are good at please, sorry, and thanks. And I'm not just saying saying those words. I'm saying it's a lifestyle, a psychology of please, a theology of thanks. If you're good at those three things, your marriage, your workplace, relationship with God, friendships, you're going to be good to go. I really believe that. But I better back up the bus one step and just say that it's a book about the power of words. And and to me, language is part of the image of God. Now, I understand trees communicate via chemicals, that animals communicate via barking or whale songs that travel 10,000 miles underwater, by the way, which is pretty amazing. But humans have the capacity to language in a way that is unique. And so the power of life and death is in the tongue. The way to think of it, and you know, it was the the Jewish writer Abraham Heschel who who said that words create worlds. That it's this idea that we don't see the world as it is, we see the world as we are, which to me is all about Enneagram. Like we see the world through our lens. I would extrapolate and say that we don't use words to represent the world objectively. We use words to create the world subjectively. If you were to record your 
words for, say, a week and go back and analyze the words that you're using, those words, for better or for worse, are self-fulfilling prophecies. So I, I believe that words matter, Ian. And so it really then is about unpacking kind of those three words that can make a world of difference in our lives. All right. Well, let's unpack each of them. <laughs> okay. Right. And I agree with you about language, that language does create worlds. And you know, both of us are writers. We know about the power of words. Uh, we both do a lot of speaking, obviously you more than I do on a weekly basis. So we do understand that, you know, language has this capacity to carry the freight of ideas and feelings and realities that uh, extends well beyond other mediums, though we could argue that music and art does as well. However, this form of verbal communication, gosh, so important. So let's move on. Talk to me about please. Well, nothing opens doors like please. No one wants to be told what to do. It's just human nature. You tell me what to do, and that's what I don't want to do. I think it's so important that we almost relinquish our rights or level the playing field, even if it's someone on our staff that is part of their portfolio to do something that I'm asking them to do. I'm going to package it with a please. And I think it goes beyond Emily Post politeness. I think it's honoring. Like, I want to ask something of you, and it's now within your power to make a decision to do that or not. And so, to me, please is a way of being others focused and honoring others. And it's, it's going against the tide of entitlement that I don't want to operate in that way. I want to operate in a way that honors others. And to me, this does get theological. It's the image of God in me greets the image of God in you, that I want to treat you as an image bearer. I want mm. to treat you as someone that has free will. And by the way, biblical tolerance is giving other people the same measure of free will that God gives you. And for what it's worth, I think everybody ought to have five or six quotes in their back pocket. Here's one of mine. Oswald Chambers said, let God be as original with others as he was with you. And I think that's huge that all too often we, we want people to speak our love language or to uh, operate with our default setting. I've learned that I'm a data point of one. I, I don't want to speak prescriptively. I want to speak descriptively. And so that, that was too many words to, uh, to describe, please. But to me, it's as simple as the law of reciprocation. If I'm asking you, now I'm empowering you. And there's a way to say a pretty please that I think would even elevate the civility within our culture that maybe um, has gone missing a little bit too much as of late. Well, it's interesting, and we let's circle. We'll circle back to this at the on the back end of these three words. But it seems to me, and this is a marker of real maturity in the spiritual life, that all three of these terms are requirement to not only do them but to be them is humility. It, to, the humility to not to say please and not to exercise entitlement, which is not humility. The capacity, we'll talk about sorry now, but I think we could 
right up front say, well, saying sorry or living in that posture it requires a great deal of humility, as does thank you. So I love that because I do believe that humility, which by the way, is a great struggle for me, is such a necessary spiritual virtue in order to do anything. Yes. I think, you know, pride is such a impediment and uh, sorry means eating crow sometimes. Sorry, mm-hmm. the, the willingness to not just admit I'm wrong, but here's the challenge. Are you willing to go first? Mm-hmm. Are, are you willing to say sorry before anybody else does? I do think you have to take one step back, Ian. And, you know, in our culture, we, we take offense pretty quickly and pretty easily these days. And we're pretty quick to cancel each other. The danger with that is that everybody's blaming everybody else for almost everything. I just, everything's going to disintegrate if we do that. I want to live my life unoffendable. Now, I know that isn't possible because, you know, I get seeds of bitterness in my spirit. There's unforgiveness and I got to work that through all the time. But I want to live in a way that just, you're not going to offend me. In fact, can I share two rules of life? And this is, this is sort of how I approach other people. One, everyone is my superior in some way, and that I learn of them. So I want to take a posture of learning. And in order to understand, you have to stand under, and that does take humility. And then the the second one for me, rule of life, is that everyone's fighting a battle I know nothing about. When I really get to know people and try to understand why are they overreacting to what I just said or did, guess what? They're not reacting to you. They're reacting to their pain. They're not reacting present tense. They're reacting past tense. And so that kind of then gives me an extra measure of grace. And, and then it allows me to say sorry. And, and the last thing I'll say about sorry is, well, one, if you're married, you better get good at it. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you know, you're, you're going to have a lifetime of practicing that one. But I think as I get older, it's easier for me to admit I was wrong. I don't know what it is, but I make mistakes. I make decisions. I mean... I get it wrong all the time. And I think sorry is a posture that maybe the way to say it is I reserve the right to get smarter later and keep that posture and you'll keep growing. You'll keep maturing. Yeah, man, I couldn't agree more. And I, I guess the thing about the, the posture of the willingness to admit wrong, right? I was thinking about this the other day that I realized that my the difficulty I have with in doing it isn't just pride. It's really, I just don't like being that vulnerable. I just don't like being that vulnerable. I guess I'm afraid, man, if I just come out and I say, man, I'm sorry, I think, you know, I hurt you. There's a kind of undefendedness, a posture of undefendedness that is just frightening, right? It's actually very cruciform. It's this opening up of the heart to someone else and realizing, I know you could kill me right now for this. I've opened myself. How do you deal with that vulnerability? Well, you bring up cruciform. So my standard is if Jesus is on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
to the very people who drove nails through his hands and his feet, I don't have a leg to stand on to live in unforgiveness. So to me, that bar is set so high, it's 70 times seven. And we're kind of, as a culture, experiencing the opposite of that. And I'm hoping that maybe this book is a rising tide of sorry. And if we can do that, now we can reconcile. Now we can have conversation that maybe, just maybe, we might not agree with each other, but we could be a lot better at agreeing to disagree. And that, I think, is going to be critical for the church and for culture moving forward. Yeah, I'm with you. A whole other show on that one, Mark. So, <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> so let's talk about thanks. Right, This third word, let's talk about thanks. This is my favorite because uh, gratitude is a core value for our family. And again, you don't see the world you don't see the world as it is. You see the world as you are. And so we all know people who in the best of circumstances can find something wrong. <laughs> and then those who in the worst of circumstances can find something right. Uh, at the end of the day, your focus determines your reality. I think Qui-Gon said that to maybe Anakin Skywalker, something like <laughs> that. But, you know, I, I think to me, keeping a gratitude journal is almost a spiritual discipline to me. Oh, yeah. I've got to keep track of the things I'm grateful for. And it's interesting in Judaism, you would pronounce a hundred blessings a day. Like if you, in fact, the Talmud says that if, if you experience a blessing, but fail to give thanks, it's as if you have stolen it from God. And mm. so I don't want to steal anything. I don't want to take anything for granted. And I, I mean, can I have a little bit of fun? This will only take 30 Come seconds. Come on. Like, when was the last time any of us thanked God for hemoglobin? Like, probably never red blood cell has about 250 million proteins called hemoglobin, and hemoglobin delivers oxygen to the cells of the body. I mean, that's a miracle, and you would not survive without it, and yet, we don't even give it a second thought. I know people who say they've never experienced a miracle. With all due respect, you are one. Every moment of every day, there's this miraculous process whereby, you know, you'll inhale and exhale about 23,000 times. You got about six quarts of blood running through about 60,000 miles of veins and arteries and capillaries. Like this whole thing is a miracle. It's all a miracle. And I think to me, gratitude is learning to appreciate some of those miracles that maybe we take for granted. You know, it's funny you should say that about the journal. Number one, I actually have a, a gratitude journal. In fact, I was just looking here to my side to see if I could find it, but it's actually in the house uh, that I write in every morning. And I don't have a hundred, but I do make a point of coming up with I just three to five, just very quickly. And I just write yep. three to five down right away. I have what we, I call gratitude walks. Uh, you know, if I'm just, you know, going to go for a walk around the block with the dog, it could be just 20 or 30 minutes of sort of gratitude prayers. And they do, they make a, t a tremendous difference. And particularly for a four who, you know, especially as a younger man, I just was always seeing what was missing, not what was present, you know, and I've gotten a ton better at it. But gosh, as a younger guy, I was so easy to disappoint. It was ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> so 
Well, hey, man, I am so thrilled for this book. I love the title. I love the premise. And I love talking to you because, let's face it, there's a lot of books out there, and I don't want to be overly negative here, but you know, there's a lot of books out there that, well, you know what I'm going to say. You just think to yourself, oh my gosh, this book was a pretty opportunistic grab at an idea. It was an article turned into a book, and it just doesn't carry the kind of theological and philosophical weight that that you bring to the table, and also the pastoral wisdom that, that you bring to the table. And so I just want to encourage everybody to go out and get Mark's new book. Please, sorry, thanks. The three words that change everything. Mark, dude, thank you so much for being on Typology. Hey, what a joy. And Ian and Anthony, thanks for letting me just kind of, we, we went in a few different directions today, but I'm so grateful for what you both do. You've been a blessing again to Laura and I and uh, eternally grateful. So, uh, and thanks to the entire tribe for letting me crash the party here for uh, this particular podcast. Absolute joy. Well, hey, everybody. Remember these words, friends. May you have love. May you have joy. May you have peace. May you have healing. May you have rest. Until next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.